So this leads us right now into the teaching. I think it's a great Father's Day message, but I never try to fit sermons in with particular days. It's just that I know that I am able to. And so the title of this is simply, Footsteps of Faith Always Lead to the Fire. I know, for Galesville people, it represents schmores, a marshmallow just golden brown and oozy between two graham crackers with chocolate overlaying it. For you, that's the fire that your heart says, that's what I'm looking forward to. Footsteps of faith always lead to the fire. For some of you, it's the tailgate. Oh, do I have a tailgate and a barbecue and steaks to go on it? I understand that. Those are all wonderful pictures. However, there is in the Bible represented a fire by which God tests the hearts of men in obedience to his will. Why? He's making a statement through our very short, tenured lives of how big he is, how great he is, how much he wants to do with how little time really that we have. We don't have a lot of time, folks. I did a wedding on Friday and a wedding yesterday. We got an 11 o'clock. And that's not unusual to be kind of compressed and backlogged. But you may say, how does a wedding have anything to do with footsteps of faith leading to a fire? Just ask anybody that got married. <laughs> it leads to a refining fire. This was the first time, though, that in this particular wedding, I had seven guys that were armed with side-carrying pistols. And I found it to be fascinating. These guys were into their Second Amendments, and I was able to say, men, you represent a strength to me. I know that I'm going to be fine. First of all, because I've entrusted myself to the Lord to lead this ceremony, but I also trust you in the reason that you are here to coordinate with my niece's husband and as his friend, I know you would do no harm. But I also know even more greatly that you are men who, though bear strength, you are men who, in faith, are also meek. It's under control. I, I have no need of fear. It was funny, though. It's the first time that I've ever had an armed entourage. I felt somewhere between, like, the president of the United States and somebody that just either was going to perform it very well or be judged very quickly. <laughs> so it was a little tense. But one of the things that I know is that even as I was exhorting and edifying, comforting those who were there, it was very fascinating to me because the message hit the mark realizing that before me not knowing them, there was a message that was touching them. I had a couple of people that were men following the service, and they came up to me in intervals. But each man came to me with pooling eyes, 
and tears that were flowing down their cheek. It's not unusual for a pastor to be talked with or to, but it is at times unusual to see men break before you. But quivering lips and pooling eyes and streaming down their cheek. And I thought to myself, wow, that was an awesome wedding service, wasn't it? I really just touched their heart, only to hear them say, what Zach and Christy have been doing is awesome. <laughs> Absolutely, brother. I hear you. <laughs> the segue is important because in the multifaceted work of God in our lives and in faith, the footsteps that we take, a lot is going on. It wasn't that my marriage ceremony was anything less than good, for I did receive compliments. But the bottom line is, is that in that particular moment, there were men who were touched by the ceremony, the hope of heaven, the greater bridegroom, and we as the bride of Christ, it was all packaged. And it was packaged as well, not only in the commitment of two lives being dedicated to one another, but the very special return of two people whose footsteps of faith led to a fire. Now, as you know, in talking about them, Zach and Christy, I have very intimate awareness of the events. And they're here, and at a given moment in time, they will share. I'm giving them kind of time to just land and catch their breath. But I can't avoid the people that are being touched by the story. And the segue here is that even for them, the message is very, very apropos. Footsteps of faith lead to the fire. On that date, November 20th, Zachary ran into a shore break. He's familiar with the sands. He's familiar with the water. He was on a pilgrimage to satisfy a request that he had made of the Lord the previous night. You're aware of that. The previous night, after a study here, he was by himself, perhaps talking to some friends, and on his lip was, I want to do something for the Lord. If he had counseled with me, I would have said, Zachary, from the time you were born, you've been doing something for the Lord. Pianist, keyboardist, singer in the waiting. He had kind of just a different emphasis. Just an extraordinary friend. But in the time following a teaching, he felt that his heart required him to say, Lord, I want to do something for you. And I believe, as I've said before to some of you, the Lord said, I was hoping to hear that from somebody. So his footsteps led into a severe shore break and a quick tide pulling out. 
a surf that he's familiar with, an activity that is like running was to him, made an opportunity for the Lord to lead him as he desired to be led by the Lord. And the journey that Zachary indulged in, though again, my thoughts as a father is I would have counseled the specifics of how we talk to God. Don't be ambiguous. Be specific. If you're ambiguous, it can lead to big fire. Big fire. Let's go little fire. And so footsteps of faith always leads to the fire. Confirmed as well and unusually and in my opinion miraculously that a mother on that day, probably within just the hour after the event, would be permitted to go into an ambulance with her son. That's not permitted. To take that trip to Crescent City only to find out that we needed to go to Reading. And so a Learjet was availed to her to fly next to Zachary. That's not permitted. To have in Reading the favor of God to be able to be with her son, Zachary, for 11 to 12 hours every day. That does not happen, especially during COVID. And then when I drove down there to be permitted to be with Christy as a couple, sharing those hours, she by far, by far had much more in time there. The prelude is simply saying this on a personal level, there's a fire that all of us are invited to be a part of. The question is, what will be your attitude when the Lord takes you up on that very truth. And is it a fire that you determine how indeed it will start and the intensity of it? Are you the determiner of that? You heard me confess, I would have been, would have gone for a little tiny pellet stove fire, very contained, very safe. Ooh, it's getting hot, I'll unplug it. but God bypassed me. And though we have opportunities to as well pass up opportunities that God is giving to us, the lesson here is to challenge us. In particular as men, we have a leadership role. Christy was no less a leader in her role, but you have to understand, she was the nurturing component part of our family unit and significant. Most of you who have read her blog know that she was touched by the Lord prolifically as an author. And actually the men that were talking to me were touched by the reality of how God had met them in their stoic maleness, in their perhaps pensive faith to say, man, that's the way that I want to live. So with this title, I'm going to direct your eyes to Genesis 
and you're going to be looking in the 22nd chapter of this book. And we're going to see, as you're familiar with, the expression of a man of faith who had no idea what was coming, only that he would not be left behind in the calling that God imposed upon him. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessings that as we consider your word, even in the narrative of personal things, tensions, realities, fires, we ask for you to bless right now this, your word, to our situation presently, in the past, or perhaps even yet to come. May we be those who say, like men and women of faith, O oh Lord, that I might enter in. And in Jesus' name we ask, amen. And it came to pass, after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. The things that had come to pass was the birth of Isaac. Abraham, as you remember, was just slightly to his 70th year, or maybe just a little bit over it, when the call of God had come to him to leave his land, where his father had raised him, Ur of the Chaldees, and to go to a land that he would be shown. That's the narrative. You can find that in Genesis 12. From Genesis 12 to Genesis chapter 22 is the pilgrimage, replete with acts of obedience and acts of ignorance, at times what we would say acts of foolishness. He represents within those two chapters the best of spiritual life and what we'd say the normative of being a frail human being persuaded by the voices of others, by the emotions he himself contained in his soul. Walking with God was kind of a new thing to him. For some of you men and women, walking with God is kind of still a new thing to you. Oh, you might be someone that says, oh no, I've walked with God a long time, but maybe not in the way that Abraham was required to walk. It was a new thing for him. Most 70-year-olds would say, that's not for me. But you know, as I'm approaching that decade, I have to be willing to say, that's precisely for me. In fact, in what is almost the near midpoint of the 60s, I have to say, that is specifically purposed for me. Regardless of what I thought about how the latter years would be, faith, the assurance of it, regardless of how it now is being defined, requires me in pleasing the Lord to say, this is that which God has purposed for me. Abraham right now has been spoken to by God as personally, as intimately as he ever had been spoken to. And in this charge, the very son that he and Sarah would laugh with joy regarding his deliverance to them in a time that would be impossible for them 
by how old they were, would now have to have a resignation and a requirement of this promise that was given to them to be rendered to the Lord as a holy offering, a sacrifice. Most of us would say, I love to read the story, but I would not live to write that in my own life. I would not will that to be something for my life. But whether it's a son or a daughter, mother, father, husband or wife or friend, the fire still awaits. The footsteps of faith always lead to the fire that tests essentially the purity by which your commitment to God has been made. I sometimes ask myself, so in the fires that you've been through, Rich, which was your best one? Always the ones that seem to be most significantly claiming my life, my entitlements. I love just the campfires, the little stove fires, the barbecue fires. But the ones that have served me the best have been the intense fires, the ones in which literally my life has been jeopardized. There's no doubt about it. In the same context, it really is more the norm to be faced off with that than the preferences of the little. For some, igniting a matchstick is about as close to a fire as you want to get. You would pursue even a trip to Everest to escape a fire, but that has its own precarious fire to it. And for those who have ever hiked it, something that we would say, man, I'm glad that I didn't do that one. But in this account, I want you to take note of some specific and obvious points that have been made. First of all, his address is here am I, not I don't hear you. I can't hear that now. I refuse to. It's contrary to the way that I have followed you. It's contrary to what I believe about you, God. He says, here am I. The narrative tells us that this is a test for Abraham, meaning that something in his heart and in his mind would have already been prepared to hear these specific words, these directives that would require of him obedience to obey or to disobey. Then he said, the Lord speaking, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. In Genesis 12, Abraham was spoken to. He was to leave his city and to go to a land that the Lord would show him. Now, being past the age, obviously, of a hundred in which he 
begat Isaac, he now very likely is in his 130th year living as a senior citizen, but is one who is truly a whippersnapper in faith, meaning there is nothing that he would withhold from God. Even the promise of God represented in Isaac who gave Sarah and he great laughter. The illustration of seeing Isaac as a little 12-year-old boy is not accurate. What you need to understand is he was a man of God. He was the only son of Abraham from God's perspective, for God rejected Ishmael, a son of Abraham's flesh, a carnal expression in a moment of doubt. Most of us know that we have Ishmael's and Isaac's in our life by what we chose to believe and what God said he would do, as opposed to getting impatient and deciding to take things into our own hands. And so this relationship, once Ishmael had been sent away, would have been a significant, precious father-son relationship in probably a time in which no separation whatsoever had taken place. Only the delegation of great responsibility Great satisfaction in seeing obedience from his son and every charge that it took to keep that tribal family together. This was a big family. We're a big family. In one sense, the church is a tribal family and we're following in footsteps that have been, if you would, established before we were even aware of it. And we follow one greater than Abraham, greater than Isaac. We follow one who is actually the author of faith and the one who is pleased in the footsteps we take in faith that leads to the fire that tests faith. This land that he would go to, we know historically was essentially what would become thousands of years later, Calvary. He was to picture in his willingness to take his only son what God would do in giving his only son, Jesus Christ. Moriah, one of the peaks or mountains, and actually we would call them more equivalent to hills, for a landscape can have a hill that actually is situated in high elevation. You have a mountain but the very peak of that mountain is to our eyes a hill. And this was Golgotha. This was Calvary. It was the place that God would offer his only son because Abraham did not refuse the fire for his son. In fact, we are told that as he has received this directive, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told them. There's a three-day journey that seems to be imposed upon them right now. And that's not unusual for there to be a specific word of God that requires not only acts of obedience, but also a tenure of travel. It seems to be that that's where God works out some of the differences 
that we experience between what we believe about him and now what he's requiring of us. Three days journey. It was probably very arduous. But what we do know is this. He acts on that word only. And we do not hear him say, so son, what do you think about this idea that God's got for us? What do you say? Oh, I know we like fishing and hunting. That's awesome. But today, what do you think about the idea of you being the main course on the altar of God? What do you think about being the fragrance today of the barbecue that you and I have enjoyed throughout these years? Just wanted to pass that by you. I've got a decision to make. I'd like your opinion on it. We don't see that. And the reason we don't see it is because it was outside of his spiritual norm. Obedience was his norm. And at times, we see people operate without our opinions, without our mind, our intellect put on it. It's not unusual, fathers, for this to be one of the biggest challenges in your life is how do you lead your family when opinions do matter, when you are, as an emotional person, easily able to be persuaded, and yet God says, can I see you act in obedience regardless of what it now may cost you? Some of my better decisions that have rendered the best outcome have been because I did not listen or seek the counsel of others in what God had clearly defined me to do. I was able to simply say, this is that which God has spoken to me. And Christy has been one who's the first packer of the boxes when that mission is clearly laid out before me. I've never had to ask, did you have that dream and vision too? It's not saying that that cannot happen. What I am saying is that on a Father's Day, do not be surprised if your Heavenly Father says, man of God, this is what I require of you. And watches to see how you will handle that charge that is for what purpose? Ministering a picture of obedience that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, did. Leaving heaven to come to earth as a living sacrifice. It's interesting in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes of this, that it is your reasonable service unto God to do what? Be a living sacrifice. The essence of Romans 12, 1, is to say, be a living sacrifice. Abraham, in some way that is alluded to, was able to do this knowing that his son Isaac would be a living sacrifice. He would fulfill to the specifics of God's charge to come prepared to take his son's life, knowing that Isaac would be a living sacrifice. That's faith. 
That's faith. For those who give prayer, rendering themselves as a living sacrifice to God, there's nothing they have to fear in the belief that what can be done. Zachary in that night, that moment, saying, Lord, whatever you want, got exactly what God wanted. Would I change things? That's the problem, is that I can get in the way of meddling in the ministry of what God chooses to do in my son or any of us. Husbands and wives and sons and daughters and friends, relatives, we all have an opportunity to meddle in the work of God as he's choosing to change lives that's in similitude to what he did with his son. The men... They had compliments concerning the wedding. I heard enough of them, and I do hear that. I move very often in weddings in spontaneity. But they were touched ultimately by Zach and Christy's story. Christy would ask me at times to pen thoughts as a father, and they were to me like term papers. I saw her with frequency in night watches, 12 and 1 after Zachary and her had taken care of just the necessities of getting to bed. And I'd see her all on her phone. I think later we had a computer, but most of it was done, I think, on phone. And these life-changing, literary, Spiritual documents would keep people close to the Lord. Her last journal, we were getting ready to go, and I knew that we had such and such a time to get to the airport. I began to read it, and I couldn't read anymore. So I've gotten back to it, because she hit the mark to the heart. Footsteps of faith always lead to a fire. There was something burning in me. I wasn't ravaged by judgment. I was ravaged by devotion. How can you pen something like that? Who are you? (laughs) Who is he? We're not told that there was any discussion with Sarah. We are not told that there was any discussion with Isaac. All we're told is one man said... This is the word of the Lord to me, and in so doing, I believe we come back. And on that, I will rest in the Lord as I pilgrimage three days to the place that he said he will show me. And that's what you need to know the illustration is about. That's what you need to know fathers and mothers that our lives illustrate something greater than the convenience of living untouched, unseared. If there's anybody that moves away from the sun faster, it's me. I can't really take the sun. And so I even gauge my weddings that are outside under a hot, you know, gulf tarmac based on the sizzling that my head's experiencing. I was very merciful at Salmon Run this last week, because normally I can talk a long time. And I sense time to close it up, 
time to give this bride and groom a chance to celebrate with family. So I think it was one of my most abbreviated services. Because there's also a time to understand that God knows exactly the heat that you can take. But there's a difference between God knowing the heat that you can take and you saying, I'm not going to take the heat. Abraham said, I'm going to pack heat. Not like the guys, the seven brides, <laughs> whatever they call the groomsmen, they were packing heat. Abraham was packing wood. In packing wood, he also took a knife. He had everything essential to satisfy in obedience the requirement of God. Because deep in his heart, he believed that he would come back. It's stated here. Two men, I and the ladder, going to that mountain. But we're coming back. We are coming back. In Romans, a great chapter to look back on to show this event, or at least the prelude to it. Here's a principle you need to understand. It's Romans 4, it's verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Did you know that his name moved from Abram to Abraham, and Abraham meant literally a father of a multitude, and it was told by God that this is what he would introduce himself as. And Sarah, who was before that Sarai, would be known as a princess among women. They would be the progenitors of literally the faith that we walk in because they would walk in it. And so before it even happened, they had to identify with something that would have made them a laughing stock. Princess, come on. Father of a multitude, really? You old geezer, what are you thinking? And yet with a stout and resolute determination, they had to become what they were not at that time. God expects you, men, wives, sisters, to become what you are not yet. Why? Because he says that he will perfect you in the day of Christ Jesus. He's moving us in object lessons to perfection for the purpose of bringing greater glory. We don't even know what he achieved in our lives yesterday that's becoming evident to others today or to the conclusion of the week. We do not know. We just know one thing. When footsteps of faith are seriously taken, it leads to the fire. And you will either fear the fire or you will embrace it, saying, in the Bible, fire is good. Fire always achieves what God wants to show in a conformity, in a purging, in a purification, in the evidence of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, all you have to do is look at Acts chapter 2 and to see that there was a fire that was given that would change the world. 
And that's when those people of faith, the disciples, would have met in a room that accommodated about 120. And as they waited in prayer and did not withhold themselves from the will of God and according to faith, believing that something as Jesus had proclaimed would happen, would happen, the Spirit of God came as a rushing wind and of cloven tongues upon every believer in that room. And yet what they couldn't see was the flame upon them. They could only see the flame upon the others with them. So like God that you will not be able to see the flame, the fire of God upon you, but you'll see it in others. And it'll challenge you to do what? Realize it's upon you. And if it's upon you, God would say, then what could stop you? What can suspend you from doing my will? As the fire awaits you, that's my empowerment to you. No matter what your mind says, no matter what others may say, to defer you, to discourage you, it is my fire and my fire accomplishes great things. We are not to think the worst of the fire. We are to think the best of God's fire. And as it is written in this verse, this word tells us perhaps the faith of Abraham engaged in what he was willing to put his hand to in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in essence this says to us, in hope against hope, or no chance at all, nothing to be hopeful in, contrary to hope, in hope, believe. If you've ever been hopeless, God would say you're closer to Abraham than you are to your friends and family because you have the sensitivity to realize that now you must believe with genuine hope. The assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. What does that define? Faith. The assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. God has given evidence to you and others cannot see it, but you believe it. God says, well, pleasing are you in this expression of faith. And it's where all of us will be confronted by the reality of our faith and what we are willing to say, let it burn. It's tough. Some literally have seen their homes go, their cars home go, relationships go. But if the fire is of God and God sees us even through the fires that we never anticipated, the consequences of what it means when a forest ignites and neighborhoods go up, God is the one that as we turn to him proves his faithfulness even in the sorrow of loss the consequence of what 
seemingly could never have been intended, but it did happen. Abraham was one who, in expression of this chapter, believed regardless. It was a testimony. In fact, this tells us towards its conclusion that it was viewed by God as a righteous act. So impressed was God with it that Abraham would be saved by it. Not being weak, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. In a prelude to where we were at in chapter 22, he believed God for the impossible that at 100 years of age and Sarah behind him by 10, they would bear. He believed. She would laugh and scoff at the idea. He believed. They were both filled with joy. But he believed and would laugh. She laughed and then would believe. Her laughter was of scoffing. His laughter was of deep belief and expression. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21, encouraging highly and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So God takes the episodes in our life that he allows us to face off with as we walk as the means by which he validates the faith that we've chosen to enter into. We're all on pilgrimage, every single one of us. There's something that freshly has occurred in your life and my life that mimics, has similitude to what Abraham was asked to do. Because the footsteps of faith always lead to the fire. And are you going to pack wood or are you going to pack heat? If you pack heat and it is the wood and you've come with the implements spiritually hidden, but nevertheless, if you would, the sword, the knife that Abraham would have used is the sword of the spirit that we hold. And it's still as effective in what it will do and what we ought to do with it. It's God who says, that's the word you walk in. That's the execution that you carry out. Not of someone, but of yourself. Why? Because we're a living sacrifice. That's the execution I want. It means in one sense, culturally a negative, a consequence. On other terms, even military and even in sports, executing a play, executing a mission means this is the way it starts. It's intended to finish in victory. Do it. Take care of it. Fathers are being challenged. Husbands and wives are being challenged. Ephesians 5 tells us that the merit in marriage, in the dichotomy, the, the means by which God has established this beautiful work between the woman and the husband of the necessity of love and respect. And God works with us throughout the tenure of our marriage to refine and define us 
in areas that we are oblivious to or we think we love, God says, really? Well, let me give you this challenge. Oh, we think we respect. Oh, really? Let me give you this challenge. And both are challenged in the necessity to obey God at all costs to comfort and convenience. Because in so doing, it leaves the opportunity for God to write upon our lives his work, his inspiration. I believe that there is an inspiring work that will have a huge, now rippling effect on people who will be going through challenges in their lives, and they'll read the heart of a nurturing mother tending a very strong son, and there will be absolutely no excuse in reading their story as to why they would have an excuse for God's story in their life. I've seen the photos. Zach's smile, his countenance has never changed. Christy's determination has never changed. On that day, Christy said, bring on the fire. See, the fire had happened. She just came into agreement with it. And the next thing that we know is an ambulance closed the door on any other part of our contribution. We were separated seven months. What happened? Two sons and one of our fine teachers took the stage two days after the event. They could have said, Dad, this is too hard for us. We can't do it. I didn't really give an option. I said, this is the time to show a strength that is not of you. Songs must be sang to the Lord. And a word must be given from us on behalf of the Lord. And as you recall, it was a rather magnificent Sunday in what was shared. The worship that was done, it's not easy to be a living sacrifice, but it was done. And I didn't give choices on that. I said, this is what I need you to do in my absence. Lead the body to see the Lord. Teach from your heart what he has put in your heart. It was a magnificent service. I believe life-changing. And that was all because, really, a son and a mother said, fire, we're running to it. Fire? What's that to us? God is an all-consuming fire. He doesn't say that to repel us. He says, I'm under control. I'm the fire that followed my people through the cold, dark nights of the desert winter season. I am the cloud that by day follows them in the heat of the sun. He is both. I don't need to fear the fire because it's for me. And I don't need to concern myself about getting burned because he's also the cloak of covering for me. 
I close in one illustration that I hope will be something for you to apply. In our last week or two, at our wonderful facility, Craig had moved us from residency on campus to off campus, and of course my heart just went, oh, it's probably gonna be a flea-infested Motel 6 or whatever. And we pulled up to a residency in, I think that's what it was called, am I right there, Christy? Residency in Marriott, I think. At any rate, we stepped up. I mean, Craig was great, but when we entered into that, it was like, you got to be kidding me. We teared up like it was the presidential palace. We had a hot tub. We had two rooms that could accommodate both Zach and Christy and myself. It was palatial. So Zach and Everest could be in a compartment that had his special needs, a living room, we had a refrigerator and a stove. But even more important were the restaurants that surrounded us. We lacked nothing, trust me. What COVID did to me at 23 pounds, I, I gathered back up again. Here's the point that I'm making. A swimming pool was there. And one of my prayers with Christy by his bedside from emergency was simply this, O oh Lord, that he might stand and walk and run and climb and swim. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. And it's very interesting because the very thing that I prayed for last was that he would swim. He swam first. We haven't seen him walk. I did see him stand. He's got a frame for that. I saw him in many, many kinds of very special equipment. Christy even more so. She again was with him every single day. Not only every single day with him, but every single day with Everest zooming through school. That's not the point that I'm getting to either. This was a beautiful conclusion to a glorious entry into a fire. And the Lord decides to say, you want a pool on that side? What about a hot tub for Rich? Because he is such a wimp with pools. <laughs> it's true. And Zachary was swimming underwater. He was doing breaststrokes on the water. He was taking side breaths from beneath the water. He was swimming again. The very area that the Lord used to transform him was now the place that he was also altering himself. He could have feared it. Oh no, not the water, not the fiery water. But all he had to do was just enter in. And it's marvelous. Some of you saw his swimming. What I thought would be the last has become the first. Therefore, would I doubt that God could raise him up from the chair to walk and run, climb? Nope, I don't. I don't care if it's 20 years. Oh, I'll be a little bit older. 
In fact, he might even lend me his chair. <laughs> but that's not the point either. Here's the concluding part of this. A beautiful fire pit outside, one of the biggest ones that I've ever seen. It was to me almost like a spiritual altar. It never went out. And Denver has the quirkiest weather. It's like winter one day, a, a spring rain, hail balls that come pelting your car and denting it. And then this very hot summer temp. And so we invited one of his vocational rehab friends over. And it's 85, 90 degrees. And this big, huge propane fire pit was in center court with the barbecue off to the right. So steaks for us and vegan for this friend. And I only say that because, you know, he had a, he had a desire to stay away from meats. Zachary made a commitment to him that if he would come to church, he would eat only vegetables. Justin not only went to a college study, he came to church. And Zachary was honorable in that commitment to be what Justin needed to see. Somebody who could just understand his way of life, his eating. That was cool. That was a bigger statement of faith than I have, because I don't think I would have given up mistakes. But here's also, again, the point that I'm making on this huge fire pit. I mean, they didn't spare the propane. It was gorgeous. I loved everything that I saw in it. But as I'm barbecuing and as it's hot, there was a change of venue. And I went in to say, can the, can the fire pit be turned off while I'm barbecuing? Oh, uh, well... That sounds like a good idea. I don't think we've ever done that before. Oh, I don't want to change tradition. No, no, it sounds reasonable. So you, I'll get one of our maintenance guys and he'll come down there and turn it off. Oh, thank you. So I go back to the grill. Can't even get it lit. So I had to have the maintenance guy come and help me get the grill lit. But the fire pit's doing great. I almost felt like I should have taken the steaks and put them on a reed and cooked them there. But he gets my barbecue going, only half of it. And then he goes over and he's looking for tools to turn off this magnificent, huge fire pit. And he successfully does. And my heart actually was touched. I was saddened by my request. It had never gone out until I asked for it to go out. The fire was too intense with the heat of the moment. I was involved in doing a wonderful activity of barbecuing meat. But that big giant fire pit with already the fire that I was going through in that barbecue and the intense heat of the weather in Denver, I had to choose my fires. And I said, the magnificent fire pit must not be in session. I went out to the place that the fire pit was at in the evening hours and the fire had not gone on. I was told that it would be reignited. It didn't go on. It was a cold fire pit. 
and my heart grieved. And I woke up early in the morning to see if I could catch the fire, and it was out. The fire pit that had burned without any concern was out because on a given occasion I said, it's too much heat. I can't take the heat. And I changed everything. There were people who would go, where's the fire? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, but isn't that a shame? Where's the fire? Now some would come to me and say, I'm glad that fire's out. That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. 95 degrees in Denver in this fire pit, but I never looked at it the way I said, oh, that's awesome. My swim trunks dry faster. And it was always an altar to me. The point being made, concluding, and I thank you for your patience, is take the heat. Don't ask God to turn off the fire because in your moment, it's a little bit sweaty. Keep the fire. Keep God's fire. He's got you under control. We can change so much about what God wants to do by just simply saying, stop the fire. Do you know if they did that in Acts chapter 2, the church would not be what it was then and what it is today, full of power. And the church can quench the fire of God by saying, I can't take the heat. I and my footsteps of faith will not tolerate the heat of God.